We have two scripture readings this evening. First, we'll start in Revelation 20, 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of the heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones in which there seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The second passage will be Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him and riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On, the robe, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of God. I'm not afraid of many things but I do not like to fly in planes. I don't know about you, there's something about it. I think part of it is the control freak in me. I like to drive. I, don't, I, don't, I wanna fly the plane, I don't wanna be a passenger. I have no control over what happens. And I remember uh, my, my wife and I, when we first got married, uh, she was working for a family who had a private jet, which if you've been in a private jet, this is my first experience, it's, it's scary, it's small. It's a tiny vehicle um, that is, um, wasn't a pleasant experience for me. Maybe, maybe you might find that fun. But anyway, so we're, we're in, this, um, in this private jet, and we're landing at Grand Lake, Oklahoma, at this place called Monkey Island, okay? And Betsy warned me. She says, just so you know, like, I know you don't love to fly. The landing strip is kind of small. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, this is fun. So we're in the air, and we're flying, and it's, it's actually going really great. The, the, the pilot is the, the man that she's working for, and he's a great pilot. He, he's a... Uh, doing great. You know, we're just chugging along. We get, we get there in like, I don't know, it's like 45 minutes, right? And I look down and I see this landing strip and it is not a landing strip. Like it was made for like a toy airplane. It's so small. And I remember I'm looking at it and my heart's just like racing. I'm like, this is not good. I do not want to be here. I'm like having a mini panic attack. I reached down and I grabbed Betsy's knee and like, I didn't realize how hard I was squeezing it. She had to like pry her hand off of me while we were trying to land this plane. Well, I say we, I wasn't doing anything, but freaking out. And sure enough, like, 
it, as we got close to this teeny tiny landing strip, I thought we were going to like clip the edge of the cliff. I, it was like literally the cliff, the strip is like right there. And sure enough, he landed the plane with grace. We were fine. It was all good. I didn't, really had nothing to worry about. But landing a plane, I, I feel sort of a similar feeling when I think about landing this, the plane of this series. Okay. And let me explain it a little bit. We've been in Revelation now for, I mean, a solid five months. We have been having this slow, steady beginning. If you think back to the seven churches, okay, where we looked at the messages to the seven churches, we've been following John's visions. We've been looking at um, the, the, the various set, sets of seven and the wrath and the judgment and the mercy and, and all these things are coming together. And I'm excited because I, what I'm planning on doing, just to give you guys a heads up, is I'm going to try to land this plane as best as I can in the next four weeks with the help of Jordan. She's going to help me one of these one of these nights. And then we're going to do something a little bit different in the summer, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but in order to do that, in order to land this plane, there's still a lot of ground to cover. And so I'm going to try to do two things tonight. Uh, I got two passages. One is um, dealing with the millennium, which we've talked about, but I kind of want to put a bow on that because it's such an important part about how we interpret this book. So we're going to kind of put a bow on our, our interpretation of the millennium. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at the marriage feast um, which is a, another uh, very important part of uh, the consummation of this book. Okay, so we're going to do those two things tonight, and then uh, we're going to look at the new heaven and the new earth coming next week, which I'm very excited about. Um, in order to get there, okay, so for, for us to understand the new heaven and the new earth, we are going to have to imagine an experience where there is no sin, Okay, so think about a world, a place where there is no sin, there's perfect harmony, there's peace, there's no more tears, there's no more sickness, no more death, a place where there is no shame, there's no loss, there's no fear. And I think if we're even able to imagine that, because I think in the cultural moment we're in right now, like we've talked about this quite a bit, we're receiving so much information, okay, it's, it's hitting us so fast and we have this sort of malaise because we receive this information, but there's not a whole lot we can do about it, right? We're receiving so much news all the time, bad news, whether it's inflation, stock markets collapsing, gas prices, war in Ukraine, whether it's global warming, like so many pieces of bad news that there's only so much we can do. And so it's hard to imagine a world without that kind of anxiety. And I think for many of us, we're actually, in a sense, held together by our collective anxiety or our anger, right? Maybe you see this where people will return to social media just to sort of get in fights with people, just to get in an argument because they become addicted to the conflict. Or maybe we hold on to anger about something because there's a part of us that isn't ready to let it go. I, I had a conversation, a counseling session with um, this couple who's planning to get married, and it was really interesting. This was a couple of years ago, but they said, one of, one, of the, one of the things they said was, I'm still angry about this situation, even though God has told me to let it go, but I can't, like, I don't want to let go of my anger, which was a really interesting thing, and I never forgot that, because I think for some of us, I, I've, I've been in that position, right? There's something about wanting to hold on to the thing that's holding us back, because somehow that makes us feel right, but at the end of the day, there is something better for us in the future. We're talking about a new heaven and a new earth. A reality coming where there will be no remembrance of the former things. 
Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. So come back next week. Um, so tonight, we have the meal and the millennium. The book ends with this marriage feast. The Bible actually, in many ways, begins with a meal. We go back to the Exodus. If you remember in the Exodus, the people of God are enslaved in Exodus 3. Um, it says, I heard their cries. I saw their oppression. Right? And then what does he do? He calls them together to the table. We have the Passover meal. Okay? We see this all the way back in the beginning. There's this, there's this gathering to the table to sit and remember. God is saying, I saw you in your suffering. I heard your cries, but what did I do? I didn't leave you to die. I delivered you out of that slavery. And so what he's doing, okay, is he's, he's saying, sit down, right? Take that bitter herb, which uh, and I don't know what the bitter herb was. I think Jews today will eat like horseradish or, or something. Um, but I think it's probably kale because I hate kale. Kale tastes horrible. I know it's a superfood, but... It's not super under taste buds. Um, so people eat that bitter herb. Why? Why does God command people to eat kale? I think, and I, the idea behind it is that it is to remember the pain, the suffering of the slavery that you were once in, and to remember that overnight God destroyed the enemy, right? If you go back, if you look at each one of the plagues in Exodus, they actually align with one of the ancient gods of that time. So for example, Ra, the sun god, what did God do? He turned the sun black. If you remember the life-giving Nile, what did he do? He turned the, the water into blood. Okay, so what's happening is God at the table is telling his people to remember. Remember what I delivered you from. Remember when I took the enemy and destroyed the enemy overnight. Remember these things. And at the table, a physical table, is where God is actually forming you and me. It's the place he chooses, and we see it all throughout the Old Testament, including the New Testament, at the, last, at the supper where um, Christ institutes the communion time that we share in once a month, right? Um, we see this motif of the table. God brings people together to remember in community, anchoring them in a bigger story, Remember in the institution of communion, when, when Jesus is training his disciples, he, he tells them, he says, for the rest of the time, when you gather until everything is made new, I want you to gather and remember. Remember my blood shared for you. Remember my body broken. It's remembering, it's anchoring them in this bigger story. But we are not a culture that I think really understands feasting. Okay, so in the way that, that people would feast or gather on the table had a certain pace to it. It was slow. It was patient. It was a lot of people gathered around a table around food and drink. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, it says that uh, it is good for people to eat, drink wine, and laugh together. Seven times it says that like almost exact phrase. Like this is a good thing that God has instituted to gather around the table and commune together. But our culture does things quickly. We like drive-throughs or we door dash, right? We don't even like to go in public anymore. We'll just have it delivered to us. I know for my family, we have young kids. Um, and oftentimes it's like, it's not even sitting at a table together. It is get in the car. We got to get to soccer practice. I'm like chucking nuggets at my kids like as we go, right? And uh, it's often a pace that is not 
suited for feasting and being and truly communing together. And what we need to understand is that because of the pace that I think we live in, we sort of have an appetite for feasting that we don't even realize. It's something that we long for that we don't even know. We need to understand the peace and the quiet and the fact that Jesus is the host. This is the marriage of the supper of the Lamb we read in Revelation. What Christ has called us to participate in. And it's what David is rejoicing about in the 23rd Psalm. I want to read this uh, together. Whoops. Oh, I don't have it in here. Um, I'll read it. You guys probably know it. Um, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here it is. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The 23rd Psalm is meant to be read slowly. It's meant to sort of sink in, to hear these words. I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it slowly. Allow these words to truly sink in. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. All the days of my life, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is no fear, for you are with me. Even though I'm going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your very presence is with me there. And I prepared a table in the presence of that great fear. In that moment of stress, in the moment where you're in the presence of your enemies, I prepared a table for you. We gather together with friends, and I'm talking like, I'm talking, this isn't metaphor, like I, I really mean physically gathering together. You know, we made this, this service, Thursday service, we started it, oh, it was pre, pre-pandemic, it was like 2018, I think, and uh, the whole like vision for it was that we were building a, a uh, we were building a service around the table. We actually have those tables in the corner there that we use for communion. Those are hand-built tables by my brother, Mike. He built those for this service. And so we had, the way we used to set up this room, we, we have it done a little differently now with all the camera stuff, but we, we used to have these, this table up front as sort of the central image of like, here is what we are t- here to do, to gather together, to be face-to-face, to gather around the table as a family of believers. And so here's, here's the principle that we have, okay? We've talked a lot about over the past year, um, practicing our faith. In fact, uh, last week or two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, take the words. These are the words I have given you. Now put them into practice. For those who put my words into practice are like those who built their house on a rock. And when the storms came, those who built their, their house on the rock, okay, so those who put my words into practice remain firm. So there's two things here. One, putting things into practice Okay, so doing it consistently because practicing the ways of Jesus is not something we do one time and, and we, we get it. Right? It's, it's something we integrate into our life. We practice these things, putting them into action. 
But there's a second part of it. So it's doing these things consistently, but it's also practicing the words of Jesus, the ways of Jesus in community together. And if you do one without the other, I think you're going to miss out on the life that God has for you today. In fact, it's, it's kind of like if you're um, the guy in the gym who only does biceps and chest and skips leg day. You know, you have the really big upper body, but like chicken legs. I hate leg day, so I totally get it. But like, that's sort of the idea. It's like you're doing one part of the Christian walk, but if it's not in community, if it's not around the table, it's not gathered together, we're going to miss out on the fullness that God has for us. So we practice the words of Jesus. We hear the words, we practice them, we do it together in community, and we gather around the table. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The Lord presides over a meal as a host. A war has rendered all enemies powerless to harm. Psalm 23 and Revelation 19 are companion pieces in the exposition of salvation, showing forth two elements, rescue from the catastrophe of the shadow of death, hospitality at a table where we are made whole with the intimacies of goodness and mercy. Here's what the table is showing us. The table is showing us that the enemy, our enemy, is powerless. And we're going to see this again when we skip ahead to Revelation uh, 20. The second is this, that the hospitality of Jesus where he feeds us is goodness and mercy. The hospitality is that Jesus is the one. He's the host who is feeding us goodness and mercy. There's this line that Jesus has uh, on the Sermon of the Mount. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I have this question, right? Because I think about this idea of hunger and thirst. Do I thirst? Yes, especially as hot as it's been. I am thirsty often. Am I hungry? Yes, I am hungry for food. My wife, before I came here, made me this delicious Thai curry dish. It was amazing. I was hungry. I ate it. It was awesome. We thirst and we hunger for things. It's a physical thing that our bodies do. But if you take that to, in a metaphorical sense, right, I ask myself the question, do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think I want to say yes, but there are times in my life where I know that my hunger and my thirst are not for the things of God. And I would suspect that there are some of us who might feel that too. And I think actually, uh, for many of us, I think we get stuck in the apathy of our age. We've talked a lot about this in previous weeks. But we live in an age, in a time, in a place in the world where our needs are met. We have a roof over our head. We are provided for. Uh, we are not like the people this letter was, was written to in, 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 um, back in the first century who are being persecuted and being um, tortured for their faith. Right? We, we live in a place where we have freedom to worship, which is a beautiful thing. But in that, in all of our needs being met, we are also endlessly entertained, like Everything is entertaining us on our, on our cell phones, on our, uh, our TV shows. There's constantly content everywhere that's always filling that gap. And so we lose our appetite, I think, for the things of God. When, he said, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think many of us have lost our appetite for that. And I think the dangerous prayer that maybe we need to start praying is to ask God, God, help me find some, some divine discontentment, which is, seems backwards, right? Why would we ever ask to be discontent? 
But I think what this is, this prayer is to say, God, given me a holy discontentment for the things of this world, and rather that I'd be discontent in my knowing you, that I would, I would long to know you more, that I would hunger for righteousness. I think that is a dangerous prayer because it allows us, it forces us to confront some of our idolatry that we hold on to, the things that we turn to. Um, I think what we do often, I call it delayed despair. That was the term I came up with today. Where uh, one of the things they talk about uh, in our generation, my generation, the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation, is that oftentimes we do a thing called deferring loneliness, where we all experience the emotion of loneliness. And instead of allowing ourselves to feel lonely, we will defer that feeling or that emotion by what? We'll pull out a phone. We'll scroll our social media. We will find a way to connect with someone, send a Snapchat, send a text. And in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a little short burst of not feeling so alone in the world, but ultimately we're deferring an emotion that later comes back to find us. And in the same way, I think for many of us, we delay our despair. Instead of feeling and experience that negative emotion or whatever it is that we're experiencing, we, we try to fill that with something else that's going to make us feel ha- happy temporarily. And that thing that we haven't actually dealt with continues to grow. And I think Jesus is calling us to something different. And I think part of the solution in our time here on earth is that we learn to practice the faith, not in isolation, but at the table with other believers both the communion table together in worship, but also even around a physical table with food and drink and true Christian community. More on this later. Now, pivot real quick. We're going to talk about the millennium, and then we're going to come full circle and connect these two things together. So, I know I've talked about this a bit, but I just want to kind of put a bow on it and sort of leave it in, in your hands for the rest of the way you want to interpret it. But we have this 1,000-year reign talked about in Revelation 20. Satan, the dragon, is bound and thrown into a pit. Okay, And then you have 1,000 years where there is the reign. And there are three orthodox views on this idea. Okay, We've talked about this a little bit. We've got um, the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the amillennial view. And let me say this off the top. I preached um, a few months back on my perspective on this, and I had an open uh, offer to anyone who wanted to meet to have a discussion if they disagreed with me, and I've had amazing, awesome, honoring conversations with people who really disagree with me, and that's okay, and that's good, and I would encourage you, um, this is it. For, uh, there are certain churches who, if you hold a certain view of the millennium, um, you're not allowed to worship there. They'll say, no, you, you can't be a part of our community. Eastminster is not that church. Right? We view this as a secondary issue, Meaning you can have um, one of these orthodox perspectives uh, and we can agree to disagree. That's okay. There's, there's diversity in our community in that way. But that said, I think it's important. I, w- I want to share what I think um, myself among many of our other pastors, the view that we've sort of um, landed on is a certain perspective. And I've, I've shared that a little bit with you. Um, but here's three things that all three views can agree on. Okay, here's the common ground. Jesus wins, number one. We all agree. Number two, Christ is going to return. Okay? Uh, Number number two. Number three, the beast will be thrown into hell forever. Okay, so those are three things that all three of those views, we can be like, yep, agree, amen, got it. 
And here's the thing. I may get to heaven someday and find out that my pre-mill brothers and sisters were right. I'm not going to be mad. I'll be happy. I'll be great. We're all in heaven. This is awesome. This isn't one of those things where it's this this antagonistic thing. Like, I could very well be wrong about this. Um, That said, I do think it's important to share um, the way we're interpreting it because it does have implications for how we live today. So I'm going to do that briefly. Um, For the sake of clarity, here's what we got, okay? We first... Here's a, a, a chart. You know I love charts. I love bringing up charts. This is the, um, a little com- convoluted, but it's a futurist view, okay? And you have this timeline, the resurrection of Jesus, the church age, the seven-year tribulation, okay? There's, you see Jesus raptures the church before the revelation in this t- timeline. Jesus' second coming, and then the thousand-year reign, okay? This would be considered the pre the, the, the premillennial perspective, that before the millennium, Jesus' second coming happens. Now, if it were to be post-millennial, the only major difference is that that would happen after the thousand-year reign. So there's different perspectives on when Jesus would return. Now, within this template, things can get a little froggy. There's a lot of like different, um, there's, there's pre-wrath view, there's, there's mid, um, mid-tribulation, post-trib, pre-trib. There's all different, different sort of nuanced perspectives within that, but this is kind of the main idea. Um, the author that we're working with said there's another perspective called the pan-millennial that everything's going to pan out in the end. Um, so that's, that's the easy answer. But I made it clear, I tend to take what's called an A-mill perspective, okay? And this is the view that essentially says after the first coming of Christ that we are living in the millennium, Okay, and that we're going to continue to live in this time until the second coming of Christ. And what Revelation is doing is it's actually giving us different perspectives throughout time and throughout history of what is happening in the spiritual world and what is happening in the big picture and what the plan is for the end. I don't believe that the thousand year reign is literal. Okay, and here's why. Um, For one, this has historically been the position that the church has taught most consistently. Go back to the second century, go back to Augustine in the fourth century. Um, Calvin was probably the most prolific writer on this. He, he was spicy. He really had some things to say about the futurist views. Okay, and then you've got, um, you, you've got multiple places in the scriptures that will literally say 1,000 years is in a day, a day is within 1,000 years. And as we've been talking about for a few weeks, this numerology uh, theme is, comes up again and again all throughout this apocalyptic literature. So back in Daniel, okay, and including Ezekiel, as well as what's happening now in Revelation. And so you've got the sacred number seven, we've talked about seven, number of completion, right, combined with the equally sacred number three, which points to 10, which is the holy number of perfection. 10 cubed, I think, if I'm doing this right, is then cubed to equal 1,000, which is like absolute total completeness. Okay, so in the numerology sort of decoding and understanding, we have this number that's a figurative number, not a literal 1,000 years, but rather a figurative number. And part of the reason I think this is, this is why, how we should interpret it, um, is it would be odd, 
since this is the only time in the scriptures where this thousand years is, is, is um, referenced, like you go back, you hear Jesus talk about the second coming in multiple occasions in the gospels. You hear about what the future is going to look like, but this is the only time this is referenced. It's referenced like six times in this verse. And so it references um, this thousand years. It would be odd after all the other moments when we don't take numbers interpreted literally, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, you got Revelation 5, where Jesus is portrayed as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, okay? I don't think we're going to get to heaven, and that's how Jesus is going to look. That is a, a sort of metaphor. That, that is this vision that is given to John that is so beyond what he can understand, but that's not something we should take necessarily literally. In the same way, in Revelation 7, what do we have? 144,000 followers of the lamb. Does that mean there will only be 144,000 on the dot? I don't think so. Shout out to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They think that, but that's weird. Um, so you've got this multiple times in Revelation where, where they're using numbers as a figurative thing, but then to come in and say, no, this is an exact 1,000 years, it just isn't consistent. And so we have then the amillennial perspective that interprets all of this in this way. Amillennialism understands the kingdom of God that is proclaimed by Jesus and his apostles to be synonymous with the millennial kingdom of Revelation 24 through 6. And so what I think John wants you and I to see here is that Jesus is not just a king who's going to reign in the future, but that Jesus is king now. He's on the throne, right? Jesus is not just some future king. He is king now. And if you go back to Revelation, we'll go to 19 verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can open there with me. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, which, by the way, this blood is not because, uh, most interpreters say, it's not because he was in battle. It was, that is the blood shed on the cross for you. His robe is dripping. He is the lamb that was slain. Yet in this, he's characterized more the lion, right? This, this uh, image we have both in, the, in Revelation, lion and lamb. Here is the fierce warrior going to battle. He's dressed in the robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is the tension that we see again and again in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. It's almost like a reverse way of conquering the enemy was done through sacrifice for the sake of the world. And so Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, is riding, bleeding as a symbol for the blood shed for us, but he is he's riding in to destroy the enemy in a sense, making a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus here is coming to reign and rule. You see, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. He will rule with them an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. That's an intense image. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of King. And Lord 
of Lords. This is, if this were to be a movie, it would be one of the least epic battle scenes because you have all this buildup and then all of a sudden he just wins, right? So much more powerful. The war is over. The king has come to rightly rule. Now, to understand this, I want to go back to the Gospels briefly. I want to go back to Mark. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Right, John is put in prison. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So here we have Jesus' ministry that was happening then and is continuing to happen now. Okay, Jesus' ministry says the kingdom of God is at hand. In this moment, there, there's a, we call it Kairos time. There's this pregnant moment of time where the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom is here. It has now come. And then he acts this out. He lives out the reality of the kingdom of God. When there's people who are demonized, what does he do? He casts out the demons. When people are sick, what does he do? He's healing people. When things are not as they should be, Jesus is coming in and he's flipping over tables and he's doing all kinds of ministry in the name of God. He is embodying the kingdom of God on earth. And he's walking in that power of the kingdom. And here's what's awesome. He takes that power that he has, and he then gives that power to his disciples, who then they go out and they minister in his name. And guess what they do? The disciples, they they deliver people who are demonized. They are healing people who are sick. They're raising people from the dead. They're doing incredible things in the name of Jesus. And then what happens Right? In Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls and the church is born. And this ministry of the kingdom is happening to this day. This is what we are getting to participate in as followers of Jesus. You know, there's this moment um, when Jesus is uh, ministering to a man who's demonized. And you kind of get this narrative with the demons. They're always like, there's this weird reverence for Jesus. Like they know who he is. You know, this is the demons knew of his name and they, they, they tremble at his name. And they're also like kind of panicky. Like they're always like, you know, we, we thought we had more time. Like we wish we could be here longer. We're not done yet. But the time has come where the kingdom is breaking in. And so Jesus has the power over them. Part of that power comes from the fact, I believe, that the dragon has been sidelined, Right? We read this in Revelation. Because the devil is, is sidelined in this moment, right? There is the kingdom of God is allowed to do its thing. There is power over darkness in the name of Jesus. The war, in a sense, has already been won. And so what you see, Jesus is, is casting out this demon. The Pharisees are like, uh, we don't like this. And so they make a claim at Jesus that you are casting out demons by demons, basically saying like, you're, what you're doing is demonic. So they're trying to like, they didn't like the attention he was getting in this moment. And then Matthew 12, 20 through 29. Uh, before that, Jesus confronts him and says, a kingdom divided you cannot stand. And then in Matthew 12, uh, 20 through 29, it says, but if by the spirit of God, I can drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone trace a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. You guys see the connection? Tying up the strong man, binding of Satan, 
right? The fact that Jesus can go and in his name the demons are trembling is because that victory has been won. Now, there are 2.4, that's an underestimation, that number's grown, probably 2.5. I think they estimate by um, 2050 that there will be um, 3.3 billion Christians in the world, okay? Right now, it's about 2.5. And there's the thing, I've been, my seminary works a lot in this last uh, quarter has been all about um, the movement of post-Reformation Christianity. And we're seeing a radical shift, not in Christianity dying, but actually Christianity exploding. The problem is, in the West, we see the opposite. We see mainline denominations slowly shrinking. We've looked at some of these trends Around us, we're living in a post-Christian culture, and it feels like Christianity isn't as safe or as respected as it once was. But globally, Christianity is growing faster than ever before. It's just in different locations. So in the global south, in Latin America, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia, in other parts of the world, Christianity is expanding faster than ever. Tim Keller uh, has a great quote. Oh, there's my verse. Um, He says this, I'm going to mess this word up. Demographers, you got it, tell us that 21st century will be less secular than the 20th. There has been seismic shifts towards Christianity in the sub-Saharan Africa and China, while evangelicalism and Pentecostalism have grown exponentially in Latin America. Even in the United States, the growth of the nuns has been mainly among those who had been more nominal in their relationship to faith, while the devoutly religious in the United States and Europe are growing. Sometimes we see certain trends and culture moving in a certain way. We see declining church attendance, and we think maybe the church is dying. Friends, I want you to know quite the opposite is happening. Christianity is exploding. There's a harvest, right? The kingdom of God is expanding. And the beautiful thing is, is that we are called to participate in this incredible kingdom work. That's the mission of the church, that we are called to go and make disciples, going into all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the good news. We're going into this battle knowing the outcome. This is what we're going to get to in a few weeks. We know the end, that in the end, Christ will come and that we and with Christ have already won. That was a long-winded way to say this. This is why I think the implications for an amillennial view matter. I think the amillennial view um, means a lot for us now, that we are living in this time where God is expanding his kingdom here on earth, and we're called to be a part of it. In the singing, uh, the gathering, the word gathered, what we're doing is, in a sense, we're standing in defiance against the kingdom of darkness. Because while Satan is bound, he still plays an active role in this world. He's sending his demons. He's doing things behind the scenes, trying to stop the kingdom of God expanding. He's losing, but he still plays a part in that. And so we are called to join Jesus in his work. If you remember when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, uh, I will build my church. And then what does he say? He says, the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's like the great pep talk of all time. You'd be a great basketball coach. Um, Two invitations in closing, um, and I think a a way of practice for us. So part of of our Thursday service um, rhythm is that we want to integrate the things that we learn and put them into practice. And so I want to give you two practical ways in which we can put these ideas into practice. The first is this. 
Practice the gathering of others around the table. And I mean this in a physical way, a literal gathering with food and drink to sit and be in community with one another and do it slowly. Don't rush. Um, Maybe getting together and taking, maybe being intentional, saying, hey, on this date, I'm going to exercise the gift of hospitality. I'm going to invite you over. My house may not be perfect. If it's my house, it will not be clean. Uh, There'll be kids' toys everywhere. But I want to invite you over. We're going to feast together. We're going to eat. And we're going to share maybe a story when God moved powerfully in our lives and share about what God is doing. And I'm telling you, when you have those moments, there's something sacred that happens. When the community of God gathers together to share a meal and to share about what God is doing, or even to share in vulnerability the ways in which we're struggling. Man, that's, I think, when the Christian community truly comes alive and is at its best. And so the practice for us going is that we would practice hospitality, that we would practice gathering together and eating as the family of God. The second practice, the second invitation. You are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that means that Jesus himself is inviting you to the table to bring your anxiety, to bring your fears, to bring your doubts, to bring the ways in which you feel like you have wronged God, to bring your ailments, your trauma, your grief, your anxiety, your passion, whatever it might be, you bring those things to the table, to a God who says, I'm not afraid of whatever's in your closet. Whatever's in your closet, what I have offered for you is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, death and resurrection. Bring it, all of it. It's okay to not have it all put together. Come and feast. I don't assume everyone who's listening, whether online or here in person, is a follower of Jesus. And maybe for you, this is very foreign. And so there's an invitation too. If, if you want to know more, I'm available to have a conversation um, to receive that invitation after the service. But I'll leave you with this in closing. Jesus is the conquering king, the one on the white horse, who's, who is the lamb who is slain on the cross, who's the lion who in the end wins. And that same king is inviting you to the feast. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we come before you hearing those invitations One invitation is for us as a community of of faith to gather, maybe to bring people into our homes who are far from you, who who may be foreign to the gospel, maybe to bring people uh, into our lives, into our our, our living rooms, into fellowship with us who um, we know we long for that community and we've, we've been living in sort of an isolated way and so we yearn for that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would step out in faith and start feasting together as a community. I pray that, Lord, those who hear the invitation to sit at your table and to bring all of our our junk, the stuff that we don't like to talk about, the stuff we're ashamed of, Lord, we lay that at your feet, knowing you're a God who sees all of our heart, all of our thoughts, and in spite of our brokenness and sin, you offer forgiveness and you offer hope. And so, Lord, we lay that at your feet, trusting that you will do only what you can do. It's for your beautiful and perfect name. Amen.